everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Talking in the Attic. I am Tevis, and my wonderful co-host is... William J., also Joseph or Joe. <laughs> That's how I was introduced. Like, I don't know what you want me to call you, so... <laughs> Hey, let's let's not get into that. All right. So we are your wonderful co-hosts for the next forty-five minutes to an hour. Um, we have a wonderful clinical psychologist with us who is going to talk about, um, you know, just some mental health aspects, what she does, how you can get into a routine of mental um, health and wellness. And she's also my boo, so. We know each other for a very long time, so um, I'd like to introduce everybody to Dr. Kristen Joy Carruthers. Hello, thank you for having me, Tevis and Joe. I'm happy thank to be you. here. Thank you. Okay. Pleasure. So pleasure. we're just gonna jump into it as always. Um, so Kristen, you are a licensed clinical psychologist. So yes. what, you know, sparked your interest? What made you get into this field? Okay. Thank you for that question, Tevis. I think I probably became interested in the field when I was about 12 or 13. My family in St. Louis had a home for children who were born addicted to drugs. So my mom's first cousin uh, was a registered nurse. Her name is Mildred Jameson. She started a place called Faith House in St. Louis. And the purpose of Faith House was to take babies who'd been born at the hospital drug addicted or with um, drugs in their system. And she became the home where those babies would stay until they got foster care placement or adopted. Over time, this place grew into a whole village, right? Um, had awesome services for children whose parents weren't able to care for them. We went to visit. And on one of the visits, I learned that there were psychologists who worked with the children um, as they like had developmental issues or just issues coping, et cetera. And so I said, oh, that sounds cool to be able to like work with kids. And so I think that's where like I kind of got my, oh, what is a psychologist? There are people who work with children who have difficulty adjusting because of something that's happened in their environment. And so I think that's what okay. sparked my okay. interest. I didn't know that. Um, so, okay, you, this sparked your interest when you were like 12 or 13, but you did go to school for clinical psychology. So what does, what kind of schooling did you have to go through? Um, how long was the schooling? And then I know, you know, there were like internships, externships, like, can you kind of explain the whole process of becoming a clinical psychologist? Yeah, so Tevis has been my friend for a long time, so she knows that the journey was a long one. Uh, from the time I left undergrad, so in undergrad, I majored in psychology at Howard University. Um, while I was there, I spent a lot of time doing like research-oriented programs. My work study was uh, as a lab assistant in a psychology lab uh, where a principal investigator was doing research on identity and success and race. So I knew, okay, I want to become a psychologist, but what kind of psychologist do I want to be? So that what people don't understand is there are lots of different types of psychologists, industrial, organizational, experimental, uh, school psychologists, educational psychologists, experimental psychologists, clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists. A clinical psychologist is somebody who uh, specializes in working with people who are experiencing mental illness or mental or emotional symptoms that would warrant a diagnosis of anxiety, a depression, a bipolar disorder, uh, or who might be dealing with personality disorders. People like to throw out like narcissism or, or borderline personality disorder. Um, a counseling psychologist also does therapy, but they're helping you with like general life stress. So you through a separation, uh, you're, you got to change at work. So a clinical psychologist specializes in the diagnosis um, and treatment, research and teaching related to um, emotional health, well-being, specifically what we would call mental health disorders. So I had to get a PhD and a master's. Ultimately, you have to get a PhD to be called a clinical psychologist. And I did that at DePaul University. So it's like, so the four years of undergrad and how, years of and then how many years of the master's and the PhD program? 
So the master's PhD program was one program that was six years in length. So about year two and a half, year three, you get your master's, but they don't let you leave because the goal is not for you to stop there. Okay. So some schools won't even like let you walk across the stage when you do their master's work because they're like, no, 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 you got to get that PhD. So it's like another four years because we have one year of clinical internship. So after we finish our dissertations, we have to then apply out around the country to a different setting to be trained, not just, mm. so they don't want you to just be trained by your school. They okay. want you to have exposure to training by somebody else. Huh? Well, I did DePaul for master's PhD, applied across the country, matched at uh, Columbia University, New York Presbyterian Hospital. Mm. And I went to New York for my internship, which is one year before you're granted the doctorate. And once you've done that internship, now you're officially a clinical psychologist. Who oh. child? That's a lot. Child, right. That's a, that's a journey right reading. there. Yeah, when I was in school, everybody's like, what are you doing? Are you really in school? So yeah, it's a long time. Okay, so you kind of alluded to this in the previous question. So what is the difference between just a regular psychologist and a clinical psychologist? Okay. Excellent question. So I think most people are, when they're thinking of a psychologist, there's either a school psychologist, that's a person who works in schools and who basically does evaluations of kids to figure out if they have a learning difference. So a reading, math, disability, right? That's a school psychologist. Or maybe a psychologist who's not a clinical psychologist, but who's a counseling okay. psychologist. Mm. So you're going through your employee assistance program at work because you want to reach out and work with somebody that may be a counseling psychologist. It could also be a clinical psychologist. Then when you think of a clinical psychologist, you're thinking about somebody um, that you might be referred to by your psychiatrist or your medical doctor or in a hospital setting because we're pretty sure you've got like a generalized anxiety disorder or you've got a major depressive disorder that's recurrent. Like there's some level of symptomatology that is kind of organic or uh, not just caused by gotcha. life stress. So it's more physiological. Okay. Yeah, there's a physiological basis for it. And then there's some also environmental factors that kind of create the perfect okay. storm. Okay. So okay. Is, um, do you have like specific treatments for like, mm -hmm. okay, that only you as a clinical psychologist can practice as opposed to like a school psychologist. Yes. Okay. So a clinical psychologist, um, so clinical psychologists do neuropsychological testing. So if we're trying to determine if a kid has autism, a clinical psychologist is a person who does the testing to figure that out. Neuropsychological testing, um, Okay, I'm trying not to go too deep with this, y'all. Clinical psychologists diagnose, assess, treat. Okay. In some states, um, medical doctors who are psychiatrists, clinical psychiatr psychologists who are PhDs would be the only people who can do the diagnoses. Okay. So if you are a licensed like practical counselor, technically in, in like at the state of Georgia when I got here. You weren't supposed to be able to diagnose. But now in the state of Georgia, that's okay. now changed. State of New York, totally different thing, right? As long as you're a licensed clinical social worker or a licensed clinical psychologist you, or a um, psychiatrist, you okay. diagnose. Okay, so that's pretty much what separates, I think, us from other okay. disciplines, diagnosis and assessment, and then the treatments that we okay. do as well. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna follow up with a two part question. Yes. So what are the most common disorders that you treated? Mm -hmm. And also during the pandemic, did you see a spike in any disorder or disorders mm -hmm. that, and that requested a, a specific treatment? Absolutely. So first I am a child psychologist by training, but as a function of being a child clinical psychologist, I work a ton with parents and then mm -hmm. as a result I work a ton with adults. Okay. So the most frequent thing that kids come to me for is ADHD or an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So all of the, the clientele that I typically get is kids who are uh, struggling with behavioral symptoms in the classroom, behavioral symptoms at home, and that's typically anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. 
um, the adults that I see are largely anxious, depressed, and also sometimes meet criteria for ADHD. Mm -hmm. So that's like my, my specialty. Those those three areas during the pandemic was, uh, like an influx of anxiety and depression, right? So for kids, anxiety and depression kind of tend to co-occur. We say it's really hard to tease those apart in kids. For adults, I can try to figure out like, are you more depressed or are you more anxious? Are they both separate or they intertwine, right? And so during the pandemic, it was like a major trauma for us all. And it was a complex trauma. So we had racism stuff happening. We had not knowing what was happening with this disease. We had family members who were dying, people getting it. We're not sure if they're going to be okay. Uh, We're stuck in our homes. And so anxiety was high, Mm. very high. Um, And so the treatment for that is cognitive behavioral therapy. And one of the treatments, one of the evidence-based treatments for that. And that's one of the things that I do. Okay. All right. So during the pandemic, I'm going to stay on that topic. Yeah. Um, as you saw, there were a lot of professions that started losing uh, uh-huh. counterparts and coworkers. Uh, was, did the pandemic, did you all in that, in that field suffer a shortage or, or did you say has the field recovered from that point? Okay. It was like, we couldn't come up for air. Mm-hmm. The demand was so high and the, the numbers of us are so low. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I'll tell people is like, you don't have to just be seen by a clinical psychologist. There aren't many of us. And when it comes to black clinical psychologists, we're less Mm -hmm. than 1% of like, there's the numbers are very small. Mm -hmm. So what you really want is you want to know that the therapist that you're seeing is doing some evidence-based intervention. So I just Mm -hmm. want to do a plug for that. Evidence-based intervention. That means there is data, there's research to support that the strategies that they're employing in therapy are actually beneficial for what you're going through. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it was like we couldn't come up for air. And so the hard part about the pandemic for many providers was that, you know, we're trying to book so many people because we know there's not a lot of people for people to see. But then in terms of your own work-life balance, you're sitting in a room talking to other people about their problems Mm. all day long. And then you Mm. got kids on virtual learning. You got your significant others working at home. Mm. You have your own emotional health and well-being. Correct, right. Many of us had to make sure we were in our own therapy. I know I did. So we had to be in our own therapy Mm. while we were going through pandemic. Okay. It It was something. Okay, man, I bet it was. Yeah, it was deep. Yeah, I know it was. So also, what do you feel just in your profession uh-huh. is the biggest challenge that you face? I um biggest challenge that I face in my profession is that we don't have enough black people doing it, especially black men. Mm. And so there's always getting calls from parents. Right. You have a black male psychologist you could refer us to for our son. Mm-hmm. Even some of the black men that I've worked with, like I work with them and I get to a certain point. I'm like, oh, I need you. You got to get a man's a male perspective and a black male perspective. And I, we used to say it's like a, it's like finding a unicorn, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. I've, I've been able to tap into a few black male psychiatrists, but I have an even harder time finding black male psychologists. Um, mm. More, they're more uh, licensed clinical social workers, but we really need ourselves represented in the field, and that I think is 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 big. Like there are yeah. lots of barriers. It's a time-consuming, expensive process to become a psychologist. Yeah, there are not a lot of training programs that are just going out trying to put bring black people on. Right, my training class at DePaul was a class of six. Two of us out of the six were black. And DePaul was like, in my opinion, it was almost like an HBCU because every class had at least two black people. And so the time when you're in school, there's probably about four classes on campus at a time. So that's eight people. Mm. That's unheard of in most clinical programs. Wow. You know, so that's why you hear people talking about uh, another route is the PsyD, the Doctorate of Psychology, which is a, a program where, but you pay out of pocket for those programs and it's very expensive. Oh, wow. PhD program is paid for for you and okay. you work. Okay. So social work is another way that people get into the field because it's mm. two years. You're paying for two years of school okay. rather than four to five years 
like with a PsyD or with a PhD waiting on somebody's funding. So I could talk all day about that. But I don't want to bore you all. No, no, no. You're not boring me at all. I'm, I'm, I'm tuned in. I'm leaning into the camera. Like, <laughs> keep going, please. Keep feeding. It's just a, it is a lot. Like, okay. we really need black people in the field. Yes. Okay, audience, you hear that. I hope this sparks up an interest for somebody out there. Seriously. Yes. Yes, definitely. So, and you talked about um, just during the pandemic, but this is not just related. My next question just related exclusively oh. to the pandemic. It was talking about um, when you're with your uh, your clients, how do you maintain your boundaries during a counseling session? Because you're just so interpersonal with them. You're getting way in depth. So how do you deviate that when you have to maintain, like you said, your own personal life and everything else going on? So that's one of the core tenets of our training is like mm -hmm. ethics and having a, and a part of the ethics code is appropriate boundaries. Mm -hmm. So I can like I have patients that I just really I'm like, if we you were not my patient, we would hang out. <laughs> or I know you probably know some of the same people I know and we run in the same circles or I know I've seen you before. But <laughs> it is uh, not. It, it is contraindicated to develop personal relationships with the people you treat because in psychology, it's really important to have boundaries because in, in many cases, people that you're working with are there because they have not, they have not had consistent boundaries. The people in their lives who parented them, their families have violated boundaries, right? And you don't want to perpetuate that in your work. And so it's really important that you know you're not a friend. So one of the things, I think I mentioned this to Tevis before, um, some of my friends have said, oh, you're a bad psychologist because of the advice I give them as a friend. And I say, I'm your friend, I am not your therapist. The things I tell you as a friend, okay. I would never tell you as my patient. Okay, so there is a difference. There's a mm -hmm. balance, and the boundary is also important for us because we need to make sure that we don't do harm, right? Mm -hmm. So if I start to join you in your life and I'm coming to your birthday parties and making recommendations and overstepping, right? There can be some negative impact, mm -hmm. yeah. right? We can get confused about roles. Um, like in the state of Georgia, when you take your exam here, they talk about sexual relationships, we lose our licenses if we ever enter into a sexual relationship with a patient. Mm. Doesn't matter how long mm. it's been since you've been with them. To, be a, to have a friendship is supposed to be five years, right? Mm. It's supposed to be five years post having okay. worked with, that's how serious we take boundaries because people have been mm. manipulated by people in positions of power. Mm. There have been psychologists who have sexually abused their patients. Oh. Or who've entered into inappropriate sexual relationships or friendships with their patients. So what I have to know is no matter how much I like you and how much I want to be your friend, I'm not your friend. I have friends, but I enjoy working with you. Right. So it's like very clear, you know, I've, I've been out in Atlanta and I've seen my patients. It is our ethical code that I do not acknowledge my patient if I see them out. Okay. I can wait for them to approach me. Should they approach me, then I can greet them. If they mm. don't approach me, it's like you've never seen. I don't know you. You don't know me. It's confidentiality, oh, okay. right? If I talk to you, you're out with your significant other. They don't know you in therapy. And I say, hey, Joe. And they're like, Joe, who was that? Huh? Oh, I'm that's sorry. my therapist. Oh, no. I didn't know you was in therapy. Oh, oh, you don't want to tell the person you're in therapy. So now it's an issue because she's like, who was, this, who was this talking to you, Joe? <laughs> So, like, you can see how this could go in any yeah. different way. So I'm being silly about it, but it's like we really have to protect people's confidence. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I, to I totally understand. And look, yeah. let's take a break for a second. And we want to make, make sure we maximize our time because I do not want Kristen sending me an invoice. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll be back in a second. Have you been feeding your skin quality ingredients? Are you dealing with any type of skin condition such as eczema, hyperpigmentation, body acne, or discoloration? Here at Joy House Essentials, our triple whip shea butter is 100% handmade and whipped to perfection, guaranteeing results you will see and feel instantly. Give your skin the nourishment it deserves and stop using harmful, chemical-based products today. You can find us at www.thejoyhouseshop.net or give us a follow on Instagram at jheshop. Joy House Essentials, let's elevate right, together. So we are back. Um, Kristen, you had mentioned earlier you are a trained um, child clinical psychologist. So is within that realm, is there like a specific niche um, or anything that you particularly cater to? Um, 
like with just counseling children and like their parents and everything. So, so there's a niche that I have fallen into <laughs> over the last couple of uh, years since I transitioned to Atlanta from New York. I originally was like ADHD parent training, school consultation, parenting person. Okay. And now I've become a high conflict co-parenting person and therapist to kids whose parents are experiencing child custody issues. Mm -hmm. So I will either serve as the kid's therapist that's like court ordered because the kid has witnessed so much drama between their parents or the kids have been forced separate, forced to be separate from a parent. Um, or I'll serve as the co-parenting therapist for two parents who can't seem to see Gotcha. So you're like a mediator for the, the parent. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, or, well, they go to mediation with the attorneys uh-huh. and mediation does not work. Yeah. And then they say, okay, now you have to go see this therapist okay. and you all have to figure it out. And then they go back to mediation okay. or back to court. And so that's what I've fallen into here in Atlanta. Okay. And mm-hmm. you've done this particular has this been for like a couple of years, like three or four years? Well, it started off in New York. A lot, some, some of my, the kids that I worked with just happened to be in situations where their parents were divorced and they didn't get along. Gotcha. And so that was like first introduction to navigating a kid who is experiencing behavioral symptoms at home and at school and their parents don't get along. What came first, chicken or the egg? Mm-hmm. What's going on? How do I get these parents on the same page? You know, it could be as simple as, uh, are we going to accept ADHD medication for our kid? This parent says, no, I don't believe in meds. This parent says, yes, meds would help. And then the schools, you know, and helping them to kind of have those conversations. And when I got here, I uh, ended up joining a, a team of psychologists. We all practice independently, but two of the people on the team did a lot of this work. Okay. And they were like, Kristen, we need somebody to do this work. Okay. So I said, okay. Okay. So, um, just a quick question. So mm-hmm. you mentioned medication. So are mm-hmm. you the one who prescribes this medication or is it the doctor or is it like a, um, what's the other one? Uh, okay, you got it. Excellent question. So the difference, I think this is something people need to know. The difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. They go to medical school, they go to residency, they go to a fellowship, and they have the ability to medicate. They write prescriptions. In certain states, psychologists can take additional courses to gain prescription writing privileges. So I believe in Illinois, psychologists can go back to school and take courses, but that's not what I do. Psychologists do not medicate Mm -hmm. unless they're in those states. We all try to stay in our lanes. The psychiatrists... Uh, typically medicate, and some of them do therapy. Mm-hmm. Psychologists uh, and teach. Psychologists do research, teaching, and therapy. Uh, social workers do therapy oh. and teaching. You know, okay. but psychiatrists are the only ones who medicate. So no. Okay. Um. So you know, I'm just like any other field. Like you have to stay yeah. on top of the new things, the new not. I don't want to say yes. new things, but yes. you know, new education new type of therapy. So how do you, um, how do you like your particular? Okay. So what we do is we're always at a conference. (laughs) So in order, like always at a conference and there's always articles coming out. Um, and so I'm a member of a couple of organizations. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So what that means is I think thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are related and that if I can get you to be aware of thought patterns, I can change how you feel and how you behave. There's an association. We go every year, get our continuing education credits, see what the newest research is out there in the field, engage with peers, right? Um, Then I'm a member of the Association for Family and Conciliation Courts. And that's all about what's in the best interest of children when it comes to child custody issues. Um, and so doing, you know, constantly doing that. Uh, but we have requirements for continuing education. Okay. We, one of those is going to conferences, getting trained, making sure you are certified in some type of evidence-based therapy. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and trying to stay on the cutting edge. Okay. 
Um, so shifting back to like specifically your session. Yes. Do you have a particular structure that you follow or is mm-hmm. it like, okay, it just is for each patient is something different. And typically how long is a session for you? Because I know you're dealing oh. with children. Yeah. The attention span yeah. is completely different than what it is for adults and everything. So. Okay. So for kids, I'm typically doing a 45 minute session okay. for adults. I'm usually doing a 60 minute session. The session typically starts with us setting the agenda. So you're coming to me, it's your session. You say, Hey, Dr. Kristen or Dr. Carruthers, I want to make sure we talk about this situation with my mom, these thoughts that I've been having and my appetite. I say, okay, that's on our agenda. We go through each of those issues. You describe to me what the problem is, how it's making you feel, what you're noticing that you're doing, how you're thinking about it. I ask you questions to help you gain insight about why different things might be bothering you. I help you to identify some patterns and maybe the people you're around when you experience symptoms, the time of day. Is this linked to some historical trauma? So I'm a trauma person. Um, And we try to like dig, figure out where this is coming from, identify what you've been doing or thinking that's making you continue to have these symptoms and try to come up with like a stepwise plan. Now in one session, we ain't gonna figure it all out, (laughs) but I'm gonna have one, at least something tangible that you can do to either change your mood or to change your behavior. Okay the next week. But I've got to make sure I'm not pushing you too fast because sometimes when you push people too fast, they don't come back because they're embarrassed if they haven't done what you told them to do over the week. So I'm a more directive therapist. Now, other types of therapists, you come into the room, you sit on the couch, the therapist says nothing until you speak. That's a more psychodynamic approach. So that's also another type of therapy you may experience, right? Some people are more solution focused. You come in, you say, I'm having a problem with my mom and they like, let's problem solve it out. Other people are more like insight oriented and they want you to kind of just talk about what things have meant for you. So it really depends on the type of therapy you're in. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so us, we're colors, the blacks. Yes. Colors. <laughs> um, what would you say is like um, a major or a common um, misconception about psychologists and actually going to therapy I would I say let's start with the black community and then we yes. can delve into just in general what are some of the misconceptions yes. about let's go yes <laughs> you saw that did y'all see that meme where it was like it was a video meme it was something that was on Instagram um and it was like a person saying so you telling me to go talk to a psychologist about my problems when they have problems did you all see that? No, I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's a video. And then people took it and said, well, you talk, telling me to talk to a dentist about my teeth when they got teeth? You telling me to talk to a hairstylist about hairstyles when they don't know how to do their hair? Like, listen, nobody is saying that a psychologist or a therapist is a perfect person. What we're right. saying is that sometimes you need an independent third party, somebody who is not your family, your right. friend, your pastor, mm-hmm. who is not like intimately involved in your everyday life to give you some insight, to just sit and listen and give you some insight. Number two, going to therapy does not mean you're crazy or that your elevator didn't go to the top. That's what my grandmother used to say. <laughs> it didn't go all the way to the top, right? Going to therapy is simply like a space for you to be able to talk and not to hear everybody else's opinion. Mm. Something is bothering you. Something's there that you need to get off your chest. And this person, you pay them. And they're going to sit there and they're going to listen and say nothing. And then they're going to give you something that's going to be different than what your mom, your sister, your brother, your uncle, your cousin is going to give you because they are trained mm-hmm. to work with lots of people who've dealt with this. You're not alone. So for me, for Black people, we're, we've been taught to be very private. And that's because we have like intergenerational transmission of trauma. People have done us wrong. We did not create psychology. Okay, psychology it was largely created by Jewish culture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, created by another culture. This is not what is the norm for us. And so accepting that help or, or seeing it as okay can be tricky because it's like, well, if I share with people, how will they use this against mm, me? Yeah. No, that's very, I mean, that's that's real. It's just So I'm in therapy. I'm very transparent mm-hmm. about being in therapy. And initially it was just like, 
what I'm telling you all this. How is this going to come back to bite me? You don't tell. What mm-hmm. you, gonna, you know, how are you going to use this against me? And it just took a while of, you know, okay, this is not to be used against me. This is to actually help me. But I, you know, that I guess that is like the mentality of most people of how are you going to use this against me later on? Right. How will this blow up in my face? Mm-hmm. Like, can I tell you, you really won't tell anybody yeah. anything? I'm going to tell you all, I was in a restaurant in Atlanta and a famous rapper was two tables away from me. And I heard that rapper tell their children, don't talk to a therapist or a psychologist because they will, they can go back and tell people what you've said. I sat there with my other psychologist friend. She was visiting from out of town and she was like itching. She's like, we got to say something. We all said, no, we are over here having dinner. Yes, he is spewing misinformation mm-hmm. to his kids, but this is how these things get perpetuated in mm-hmm. our kids. Yep. The only time I can break your confidence is if I think you are going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt somebody else, or somebody is trying to hurt you, mm-hmm. especially for kids, right? So we have something that's the Tarasoff law. There was a therapist who was counseling someone that person told them that they were having thoughts about hurting someone else. That he, the therapist did not disclose to the person that their client was going to hurt, that they were gonna be hurt, and that person ended up dead, okay? We can't have that happen, right? So, or if I become aware that stepmother is abusing stepson, stepson comes to session and tells me that, I can't keep that in confidence. I've gotta keep this kid safe. I've gotta report. Okay, this kid is at home taking pills or considering hanging themselves. I can't keep that secret. Those are the three things that I tell. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, like when you speak to your attorney, you've got privilege. Same with a the therapist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what I need black people to know too. Gotcha. Unless it's court ordered, and if it's court ordered, then you need to be very clear about what the therapist limits are. What can they disclose to the courts and what can they not disclose to the courts? Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So, so um, what, what would you say some of the biggest adjustments that you had uh, since you first started working in your field? Money. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. Okay. Okay. okay sorry. My, oh, no. So, let me tell you. You don't become a therapist if you want to. Oh, can you all see me still? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Why can't I see you? Give me one second. Okay, I can see you. Sorry. <laughs> so here's the thing. You go into a lot of debt to get this degree. Mm-hmm. You come out of school and you don't make a lot of money. My first, um, my internship in New York, I was making $25,000 for the year. Wow. In New York. I'm taking in New York City, right. Harlem. Harlem. <laughs> And then my postdoc, I was making about $44,000. And then my first job, I was making about $65,000. And then my next one, it was like eighty-five. And I was like, I am a community mental health person all day. I want to help communities that are underserved. Mm-hmm. How am I going to live? Yeah. And you have to work multiple jobs. You have to have a mm-hmm. private you have to teach so and that's what I was doing I was teaching online teaching in person working and doing a few hours of private practice on the side working at a hospital to get to a point where I had enough money to live Mm. and over time I burn out I said I can't do community mental health anymore it's it's highly triggering for me I'm stressed out I've been in this since 2005 and at that point, I was getting to about 2014. And I was like, I got to do something different. And I mm-hmm. went and worked in the private practice world. But I wasn't working for myself. And mm-hmm. so I knew what was the amount of money that was being made for me to meet people. But what I was taking home didn't match that. Mm-hmm. And then I had to step out on faith and say, nope, I have to do this for myself. So what I want to tell people is when you hear from psychologists that they don't accept insurance, that is often because we cannot earn a living wage if we do. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, the, the rate of reimbursement will be very low. 
We'll have to see 35 to 40 patients to maintain, and it's not healthy for us, and it's not productive for you. If I got 40 people on my caseload, there's no way I'm giving you the best that I've got, right? No way. And so many times we will eventually go into private practice so that we can become entrepreneurs, that we can have our command our own wage. If we have a sliding scale to account for like everybody can't pay the fee, that's what Mm -hmm. we do. I'm still working multiple jobs, but I think what I've seen change over time is when I entered the field, I thought I would always be community mental health and then private practice people with sellouts. Mm. Once I got in the game and I did trauma work and worked in Washington Heights and Cabrini Green and every place mm. else, and I'm living in Harlem and I'm like, this is rough. Mm-hmm. A lot to like do the work and live it. I, I have to also have some agency or some ability to live well. And so I had to shift my thinking about where I was going to be in terms of career and how I was going to think about money because it's important. Yeah. It's very <laughs> Definitely. You know, yes. Yeah. So you spoke on, um, you actually answered one of this first part of my question earlier about how patients get matched to the particular therapist, mm-hmm. but this is something I wanted to know as well. What should uh, patients look for when they choose a therapist? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think you may not necessarily find reviews online. Like, right, okay. oh, and sometimes with reviews online, you've got to be careful because typically the people who leave reviews are ones who are not pleased. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure that you're not just kind of looking at reviews. Okay. What you are looking for is fit with your problem or issue. If you're saying I've got a trauma history and I've been through some stuff and now I'm super duper angry, you need to find somebody who specializes in trauma work Mm. and who hopefully does some type of like cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure response prevention for anxiety trauma. You want to make sure that whoever you're working with matches what your need is. Okay. Um, Look for people who have trained at accredited programs. Mm. Look for people who are licensed. Look for people who seem like they would attempt to understand who you are. You know, you visit the website, you read the bio, you um, ask people for referrals. Sometimes asking for asking people around you who they work with, they can give you ideas. Even if that person can't see you, they might be able to refer somebody else. So you should be looking for someone who is licensed, someone who's completed training at an accredited program. And you can find all that information out on their bios, go on psychology today, you'll find that information. And then you're looking for a fit to what you're going through. Okay. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that info. So tell me this, how has, let's, let's get it a little lighter. I want to know, Okay. you know, how has your experience as a psychologist changed since you first started working in a field? How has my experience as a psychologist changed since I first started working in the field? That's a good question. I don't even know how I should answer that. Tell me what you're thinking. What I'm thinking? Well, you were talking about when you first started working in like uh, Cabrini nights mm-hmm. and things. And now you've gotten to this level. Like, what are some of the things that you wish you had have known beforehand besides? Yeah, I wish I would have had more tools under my train, under my belt Mm. when I started. Mm -hmm. So the way psychology programs work is typically you get pushed into working with clients before you have training. Mm. Get your training while you're working. Oh, wow. And I remember being like, wait, I'm seeing my first patient, but we just started class last week. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but that is, that's how, that's the way the thing is. That's the way the, the, the programs are set up. And so for me, I think you need to give us about a year Mm. of coursework and, uh, watching some other students who have mm-hmm. had that year of training who are now in the trenches, listening to them in supervision, maybe um, uh, 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 what's it called? Shadowing them. Mm-hmm. But many old school psychologists will say, no, you figured it out. And those interactions that you had with those patients were therapeutic just because you learned something different that you could mm-hmm. apply. doesn't mean that you didn't have a therapeutic interaction for me though. I think back to like clients I work with in Chicago 
And then I think back to like the information I gained from my internship in New York. And I'm like, man, when I was working with that little boy and his grandmother, I wish I had known how to coach her. I wish mm. I had known how to pick out the difference between ADHD and a bipolar disorder. Uh, I, I wish you. I had known, you know, yeah. how to, I hope that kid is okay. Yeah. So mm. that's the type of thing that comes up for me mm. is hoping that even though I've got more skills now or some different skills mm -hmm. that my interactions with the people early on in my training were still health. Okay. So. okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. I believe they can tell people can totally understand that and follow that one. And that was mm -hmm. a great answer to that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So what would be a process for somebody who wants to start a mental health routine? Yes. Okay. So if you are on the fence or thinking about starting a mental health routine, mm -hmm. I think one thing you could do is just visit some websites, like mm -hmm. just jump on a psychology today and put in your zip code and just like browse, mm -hmm. you know, seeing who comes up in your area. There's a website therapy for black girls that um, specializes in black clinicians. Mm -hmm. There's another one, I, it's like a therapy for black men. There's better help. I think if you're on the fence and you don't know whether or not you're willing to try it, start to just look at some people's profiles. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's really important that you reach out to your network to find out who's done it before because sometimes we think we're alone and then we ask and somebody's like, oh yeah, we went to therapy. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It's hard though, because if you got people that are going to poo-poo it or shut you down, then it can make you like not want to do it. Yeah. Um, there are some people that I follow on Instagram who are amazing. One of them is a lady named Nedra Tawab. And if you just want some <clears> like quick inspirational like boundary setting things because I think sometimes before you go to therapy you're going to have to get really good at setting boundaries with your family and friends mm -hmm. people yep. inviting them out to business um, and she is great and I'm going to try to find her Instagram handle uh, if you're having issues with um, parenting there's this Instagram Instagram or it's Latinx parenting and she explains like why we engage in some of the negative behaviors with our kids that we say are like keeping them in line but that are really like negative so I've actually found the social media sites of people who are legitimate therapists to be very helpful okay. mm -hmm. like just to give you little nuggets of information mm -hmm. okay that's good to know because we are a social media like we are so Man. it's like like no you don't want to get get your therapy on TikTok or <laughs> there are you know there are certain yeah. therapists that are on here that are like they've got some gems that they're dropping mm -hmm. but um, psychology today is one one way to kind of get started. Okay. Um, you know you are taking in everybody else's problems. It's, mm -hmm. it's heavy and. Um, like, what do you do to just kind of offload or make sure that you, you said you, you know, you were burnt out just with all these jobs you had before on top of just the mental exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that you kind of do to relax or offload you taking on so much of everybody else's stuff? Um, that is a great question. I try. Okay. So I have not been excellent in my boundaries around how long I will work and how much I will say yes to. Mm. So in 2022, 2021, I'm like, it's the pandemic. I got to make money. I got to build my brand, build my business. I was saying yes to everything. For 2023, I now know I've got to like be really hardcore with my boundaries. I got a child. I've got a significant other. My child has come home and I'm still on a call. And he's like, you're not on a call when I get home. <laughs> It's like, and my child is very like articulate about what he thinks should happen. And, but that is a boundary, right? I don't want him to think I care so much about other people. I don't have time for him. And so I think for me, having a boundary and being like, I'm done with patients at 630 and not mm -hmm. responding to a text from a patient or not responding to emails that I get on the weekend. Like that's big, hard work for me. Mm -hmm. Not respond. Right? Because I know how to have fun. Tevis was here for my birthday party. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to kick it. That's not the problem. I just don't know. Sometimes I have to be really good about saying no. Mm. It is 6.30. 
or I get a call, it's an emergency. My kid's being kicked out of school. Can you see him tomorrow? No, I actually, I can't. Hmm. If it's an emergency, you got to go to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. But I can maybe see you in a week or two. So it's really okay. about boundaries, time. That's my self-care is having a boundary. Cause mm -hmm. I don't sit still. Mm -hmm. So I can't lie and say, I'm gonna go to the spa. Now I do go for those massages at the, you know, at the mall. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that, that, look, that's great. Those mall that's massages, good. people be sweet. 10 minutes. Don't hey, sleep on that mall. Look, those mall massages. Don't it gets you right. They, I'm, I'm, not I'm not going. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going. No. Nope. 10 minutes of a mall massage. That's all you need. Like, shoulders and then going about your day but uh <laughs> i listen to uh audio books i uh, listen to audio books because i have long commutes in atlanta mm -hmm. um getting into podcasts <laughs> um yeah podcasts <laughs> but like listening to things that are like just kind of take my mind away mm -hmm. and then every now and then i'll um binge a weird like uh european 1700 1800s like royal show like i don't know why those types of things. i mean it ex it expands your mind i mean it takes yeah. you somewhere else get you out of the, the norm so yeah i get so it i can't watch anything like related to like real life gotcha huh? okay no. um so you kind of covered this a little bit earlier but you said mm -hmm. it is almost impossible for you to make a good healthy living by accepting ex insurance so, you know, are, do you accept insurance or are you mostly just a out-of-pocket pay situation? Yeah, right now I am only out-of-pocket okay. and I um, work different contracts. So, like, I have a, my private practice. I have a contract that I work with, like, a, with a couple different businesses mm -hmm. going at the same time. And um, it so far has afforded me the opportunity not to accept insurance. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. But I know many people, that's how they get their starts. So what I'll say is to young professionals in the field, you can definitely do that to get your start if you don't have a funnel of clientele. Gotcha. Well, once you get your niche and you can funnel your clientele, then you can slowly kind of taper off of that. Okay. For people who need to use insurance, it's okay. Also, do your employee assistance programs. Like, get those six sessions. If you get there, that's really a good way to get started, too. Okay. Okay. So um, you kind of, again, went into the next question, which is like, so if you are an aspiring psychologist, um, like, and you're just getting started, can you give them, what advice would you give them besides like, you know, okay, start with the insurance to kind of build clientele up. Is there anything, any gems or if I yeah. wish someone would have told you starting out that you can offer to someone out there who's like, okay, I want to get into this field, but I don't really know what I should do. How I should okay. Anything. Okay. Yeah. If you want to get into the field, like you haven't done the academic piece, consider checking out um, some conferences when uh, even conferences can be expensive. Let me say this. How did I get my start? Really, I had to talk to people who were in the psych department at whatever school I was at and ask them, what was the path? What did I need to do? You got to get mentorship. So you've got to reach out to people in your circle or people that friends of friends who were psych majors, who know psychologists to figure out what you need to do. Typically, first step is go to school and become a psych major. Take some courses. You will get an understanding of what it takes to stay on the path. Once you've gotten on the path, and let's say we're talking to people who are trying to establish practices, I learned from my mentor, Dr. Kathy Granite DePaul was, Whatever she didn't know how to do, she found somebody who knew how to do it and she took them to lunch. Gotcha. You build relationships. Mm -hmm. So if you're starting a practice and you need clientele, you talk to pediatricians, you go over to doctor's offices, you go to schools, you, um, <clears throat> this is where parents, children, adults are, doctor's offices, schools. I'm going to tell you, doctor's offices are always looking for therapist to refer their clients to. Most people present with physical symptoms before they're aware that it's actually an emotional problem. Okay. And so doctors are excellent resources to start your pipeline. Okay. And then if you're going to take an insurance, take one. 
and then build with that. So do one. So when you say when you say take one, like maybe you just take one or something. Do do Cigna. Okay. Choose one. Gotcha. The one that has the best reimbursement, has the lowest amount of like stress for you, and you accept that one. Gotcha. And then you try to build privately around it. Okay. But you want to make it manageable because the insurance companies require lots of data and it can be very hard to keep up with. Okay. So if you're going to go that route, start with one and then build up your referral sources. Okay. Okay. Well, Kristen, like I like this is just it was a great information session because there's a lot of information that I didn't know. And I'm sure our listeners didn't know. So I appreciate you taking out the time of your busy schedule to like talk to us, educate us, enlighten us. Maybe for someone listening, making this not such a scary place to go to. Um, you offered some excellent resources for people to, you know, just like kind of start their journey if this is something that they feel they should do. I feel like everybody needs to be in therapy. I say it all the time. Like you need to talk to somebody. I don't. <laughs> it's so nice though, and I don't think people notice that. Like it's so kind of. It can be cool. Like it's scary at first yeah. when you go into a room with somebody know new, but like to just sit and be heard. Yeah, and to have an unbiased opinion about something is is very helpful. It's just like, oh, I never would have looked at it like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We thank you so much for thank talking. You guys. Um, do you have any social media, or how can you know, patients, clients get in contact with you if they want information or, you know, anything like that? Sure. So I have a website. It is Dr. KJ Carr and others.com. So D R K J C A R O T H E R S dot com. It will be, it's open now, but it's going, it's being revamped. And then you have an Instagram but I have to tell you all what it is because I have to get good at it. <laughs> um, my Insta is Dr. Kristen Joy. It's just D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I-N-J-O-Y. Um, and so right now I'm actually working on revamping the website, but there's plenty of information and ways to get to me if you uh, just check the website. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you again so much. Um, I'd like thank to thank you. our listeners for tuning in. If you are new, hit the subscribe button. We are offered on every single platform that there is. No excuse not to listen to us. If you are a regular listener, uh, tell a friend, tell somebody, because something out of all mm-hmm. of these podcasts is going to help somebody. So, love um, you know, please tell someone about us, subscribe, and um, thank you guys for listening. Again, this is Tevis from Talking in the Attic, and... It's William J. All right. Thank you guys for listening. And we are gone. All right. Bye.